Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may be able to prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Romans 12.2 This is Resistance and Reformation on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. The public trial of John Thomas Scopes in the summer of 1925 in Dayton, Tennessee, was one of America's archetypal, epic-shaping events. It began as a publicity stunt. It ended as a propaganda coup. Earlier that spring, the Tennessee governor, Austin P., signed into law a legislative bill sponsored by State Representative John Washington Butler barring the teaching of the Darwinian theory of evolution as confirmed scientific fact in the state's public schools. In response, the newly formed American Civil Liberties Union offered to finance a manipulated test case defending any Tennessee public school teacher accused of teaching the theory of evolution in defiance of the law. A Dayton businessman, George Raplier, arranged a meeting with the county superintendent of schools, Walter White, and a prominent local attorney, S. Kerr Hicks to propose bringing the case to their town as a ploy to generate much-needed publicity for the local economy. The men recruited high school football coach and part-time substitute teacher John Scopes, who agreed to incriminate himself and be tried for violating the Butler Act. He had substituted for the regular biology teacher one afternoon earlier that year, though he admitted to the men that he couldn't remember whether he had even mentioned the theory of evolution in class. So, he said, if you can prove that I have taught evolution and that I can qualify as a defendant, then sure, I'm willing to stand trial. Scopes urged students to testify against him and coached them in their answers. Three students testified against him to a grand jury, and he was charged with teaching evolution and eugenics from G.W. Hunter's 1914 textbook, Civic Biology. Afterward, one of the students told reporters, I believe in part of evolution, but I don't believe in the monkey business. The prosecution secured the services of William Jennings Bryan, one of the most influential figures in American politics over the course of the previous 30 years. He was a former congressman from Nebraska, ran for president three times as the Democratic nominee. He then served as Secretary of State during the administration of Woodrow Wilson, renowned as a brilliant populist orator. For decades, he had served as a faithful Presbyterian elder and an ardent defender of the biblical account of creation. The defense secured the services of Clarence Darrow, an outspoken skeptic and agnostic lawyer for activists and agitators in the radical labor movement. He had joined forces with Roger Baldwin, the founder of the ACLU, in an effort to advance a myriad of 
liberal causes. Like Bryan, he had a reputation for his colorful and effective rhetoric. The ploy to attract attention for Dayton most assuredly did that. The trial took place over the course of 11 days that July and brought to the town more than 200 reporters from across the nation and around the world, including the famed H.L. Mencken, a syndicated columnist for Baltimore's um, newspaper, The Baltimore Sun. 22 telegraph operators sent out an estimated 165,000 words each day describing the testimony. Chicago's Clear Channel radio station, WGN, broadcast the trial with announcer Quinn Ryan offering on-the-scene coverage. The trial was front-page news all over the country and around the world. Not surprisingly, the press reports were heavily slanted against the prosecution, the jury, and even the town of Dayton, creating a withering onslaught of ridicule. Time magazine dubbed the trial as a fantastic cross between a circus and a holy war. Life magazine adorned its masthead with monkeys reading books and proclaimed, The whole matter is something to laugh about. Acidic derision was particularly directed at Brian. Life awarded him its Brass Medal of the Fourth Class for having successfully demonstrated by the alchemy of ignorance hot air may be transmuted into gold and that the Bible is infallibly inspired except where it differs with him on the question of wine, women, and wealth. The dispatches of Mencken were particularly vituperative, resorting to name-calling rather than factual reporting. Morons, peasants, hillbillies, quacks, bigots, and ignoramuses, he said. Dayton was, he said, a forlorn backwater. He called Brian a buffoon, an old Montbank, and a clown in a 10-cent sideshow. He said that his oratory was a universal joke, simian imbecility, theologic bilge, and fundamentalist buncombe. He wrote, this old buzzard having failed to raise the mob against its rulers, now prepares to raise it against its teachers. He can never be the peasant's president, but there is still a chance to be the peasant's pope. He leads a new crusade, his bald head glistening, his face streaming with sweat, his chest heaving beneath his rumpled alpaca coat, One somehow pities him, despite his so palpable imbecilities. It's a tragedy, indeed, to begin life as a hero and to end it as a buffoon, but let no one laughing at him underestimate the magic that lies in his black, malignant eye, his frayed but still eloquent voice. He can shake and inflame these poor ignoramuses as no other man among us can shake and inflame them. And he is desperately eager to order the charge. In contrast, he called Darrow's defense brilliant, eloquent, and magnificent. 
Brian actually won the case. Darrow's defense failed. Scopes was convicted and fined $100. The law was upheld, but of course, the real battle was not in the courtroom, but in the hearts and the minds of the American people. That battle was waged and won by Mencken and his media cohorts. They did not report the news. They made the news. Tom Brokaw once quipped that bias, like beauty, is in the eye of the beholder. Quite so. It is rooted in his or her unique vision of things. Thus, as media critic Neil Postman asserted, Every news story is a reflection of the assumptions and the presuppositions of the reporter who tells the story. Those assumptions and presuppositions ultimately drive what is and what is not revealed in, by, and through the media. Again, according to Postman, most news does not inhere in the event— An event becomes news, and it becomes news because it is selected for notice out of all of the buzzing, booming confusion around us. The literary lion, Sidney Lanier, once commented that small minds love to bring large news, and failing a load will make one. What was once merely epigrammatic is now epidemic— Only God controls events, but the media controls what we know of those events, or even whether we know of them. They are indeed the news makers. According to veteran journalist Marvin Olasky, the Scopes trial was a watershed moment in the history of this country. The ramifications of those proceedings are still being felt today. However, it is not necessarily the arguments from the courtroom floor that are reverberating in the halls of America today. The way the entire event was conducted and perceived by the rest of the nation set the tone for how creationists and evolutionists have been viewed by society ever since. Indeed, most people have a misunderstanding of what happened, he argued, based on the slanted accounts of Mencken and the other newsmakers who transformed the story into ideological propaganda. It's just another reminder of the truth of Joseph Sumter's quip that the first thing a man will do for his ideals is lie. All the more reason for us to persist in our great callings of both resistance and reformation. I'm George Grant on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. For more information and resources, go to georgegrant.net or adoringgod.org.